Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Canada has asked India for some COVID-19 vaccine. They say they will do their best. What does that mean? More variants of COVID-19 and a third wave. What you need to know. And while the Prime Minister is trying to get vaccine into Canadians' arms, is it the time to be talking about election? Apparently, that's his plan heading into the spring. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. LRT may be coming to the hammer after all. My plan is to drill a huge tunnel from the mountain all the way down to the city, joining the two in heavenly matrimony. No, not really. I just wanted to work you all into a lather. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Stop it, he's toying with us. He's playing with our head in the middle of a global pandemic. Uh, good afternoon. It is 12:11. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson, uh, the multi-ta- uh, multi-talented and faceted Willers. Can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show between the LRT rails. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Send us a note via the website, uh, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The phone lines are always open. All right, let's move on. Uh, lots of chatter in regard to the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, last week, it was uh, concerned over whether it was effective or not against new variants. Uh, Africa was consider, uh, uh, concerned about that and decided not to administer it uh, and, and wait and see what will happen with the new variants. Uh, now it appears that uh, it, it is uh, fine against the new variants, although there are new, like I guess with a lot of these, they will change and adapt uh, in their next second and third generations to, to accommodate any variants uh, that are out there. Uh, so it looks like uh, it is getting closer and closer to approval, also approved in those over 65 uh, years of age as well by the World Health Organization. And, of course, Canada in very short supply of all of this. We don't produce it. We're just waiting to buy it from everyone else who obviously has to uh, look after their own citizens uh, first. One of the other possible uh, avenues that the Prime Minister has uh, approached is uh, is receiving the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine through India. Uh, and uh, he, the Prime Minister was asked yesterday if uh, he had talked to uh, the Prime Minister of India and, and, and secured any vaccines. He didn't answer that. And then uh, a couple of hours later, uh, the Indian Prime Minister uh, tweeted that he had talked to uh, the Prime Minister and that they will do their best, do its best, to see shots uh, are sent to Canada. What does that all mean and what is our current relationship with India? Let's bring in Anita Singh, fellow with the Centre for the Study of Security and Development, research in Canada-India relations at Dalhousie University, and is with us now. Anita, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thank you for having me. So what are the latest concerns uh, about uh, AstraZeneca? It appears that, um, that the concerns over uh, variants have been addressed. What are you hearing? Well, not being an expert in, in vaccines, but rather the Canada-India relationship, I think one of the reasons why Canada is looking to India is because um, India is, you know, in it has a, a market share of uh, vaccine production for cheaper vaccines as opposed to the Pfizer and Moderna um, vaccines 
that have been kind of in use in Canada to date. Um, so this is a cheaper vaccine. Yeah, from all reports, we understand that that's, that will be the focus of India's vaccine production is the, um, you know, I think there's eight, and I, I, I can't recall all the names, but there's about eight vaccines that uh, would start production in India, uh, specifically, um, at, and that would exclude the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. And from what I understand, India has quite a strong pharma industry. It's been in in um, the generic um, pharmaceutical industry for quite a long time, and therefore has a, a number of companies that are um, that that produce generic medications, and it puts them in a very good position to be uh, generators of uh, producers of vaccines as well. Uh, from what I understand, about sixty six zero percent of all vaccines. Uh, in the world are run through facilities in India. So they already have the infrastructure in place, which is why they've been on the front lines or are now going to be on the front lines of vaccine production for the entire world, not just Canada. So you said generic drugs. So where does that leave uh, companies like Pfizer and Moderna? Are they producing there? I, again, I don't know. Um, that's not my area of expertise. Is right. No, I understand. I understand. Yeah. No, I'm just I'm, I'm trailing off and getting other questions uh, as we're uh, as we're uh, coming on board with this. Um, let's uh, um, talk about the relationship between Canada and India. Is it strained? We, we've heard some reports that it is. It, <laughs> some reports would be correct. Um, I think pointing to 2018, uh, the trip that Prime Minister Trudeau took to India is the case in point for what the relations look like. Canada has approached India, I think, on a very um, theoretical, let's say, level. And and there's a lot of chatter often about, you know, our shared democratic values, our multicultural values, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to the, the, the push comes to shove about like what is actually the content of Canada-India relations, that's where we see a deficit in this government's rhetoric around India. What is it that we're looking to, you know, share in terms of like an economic value between these two countries, trade in particular? Uh, and we do see that effect of that lack of specificity in how our trade numbers have stayed stagnant over the last, I would say, you know, 15 years. Uh, what's interesting about this conversation on vaccines specifically, though, is is finally we have a, a, a specific ask. We're asking for something, you know, directly and with um, with some specificity around, you know, what Canada's needs are. And we're seeing the Indian government respond, despite the fact that there hasn't been the most positive relationship between the Trudeau government and the Modi government. Um, and so there, there's there's a little glimmer of hope for Canada-India relations. Uh, I think because it it again um, sort of has a shared uh, they have a shared interest when it comes to vaccines. So is the general feeling that uh, the prime minister uh, sticks his business into where it doesn't belong with more social I- issues in India as opposed to concentrating on things like trade? I don't. I don't necessarily. I, I think when um, the prime minister makes comments around, for example, you know the the farmers' protests, I think they are founded and they do sort of sit in the area of our democratic values. 
But the problem is, is that if you don't have an economic basis or if you don't have a shared understanding or relationship beyond that, mm. then it just sounds to Indian audiences, um, the government in particular, as criticism. And there is no foundation that kind of that can mitigate against that. Right. And, mm-hmm. and so that's where the challenge comes from. If there was a strong economic relationship where, you know, we had various avenues of um, integration and discussion with the Indian government, a comment on farmers' protests might not weigh as heavily. But now it's the only form of dialogue that's happened up until uh, up to date. And which is why I think we saw the prime minister's hesitancy when he was asked about India you know, a couple hours, as you mentioned before, um, his hesitancy to name India specifically. It was only after the phone call happened that, you know, he could put out a statement um, saying that India... Why does the... Together. Why does the Prime Minister not have more interest in trade and in and, and other things beyond commenting on, on issues as the farmers, as you said? Why, why is that relationship... Uh, has it deteriorated? Why has it not grown? I think there's two things we can point to. The first is the nature of foreign policy making in uh, Canada more generally. So this applies to countries across the world is that Canada has been very reactive, um, you know, to basically world, world events. There's no proactivity in this government when it comes to foreign relations. What you saw, and if I had to do a comparison, for example, with uh, the Harper government, the Harper government was very clear on what it was interested in. It was interested in free trade and it was interested in the economy and so went out and was able to use that narrative to suggest that they want to sign, for example, free trade agreements or economic partnerships with various countries, including the EU and India. And what has happened is we don't kind of have um, a central guiding principle of this government. I, I, and, you know, I've looked at foreign policy for a long time and I can't quite pinpoint what it is the Trudeau government is interested in. And now with the COVID pandemic, there still seems to sort of be uh, an additional distraction. Distraction maybe do you think Canadians don't want to minimize it. And do you think Canadians would be surprised at that? Because we would, I would just assume we had a great relationship with India. Just simply because, I mean, you know, uh, th- there's lots of of uh, immigration here from India. There's lots of 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 uh, of relationship that way. It appears so. I-, I would have never thought as India, one of those countries where you know there's some irritation. There has been irritation for for I would say decades. <laughs> uh, and I mean, not to get into the full history of it, but you know, the the nuclear. Um, proliferation that, that happened in India was kind of a point, it was a turning point in Canada-India right. relations, but yeah. it never really yeah. recovered from that. Um, on immigration in particular, I would say that that sort of is a um, an individual level of consideration. So you have immigrants going back and forth and having sort of, you know, uh, local level integration between Canadians and Indians. But that still doesn't speak to what the Canadian ethos is around what its relationship is between our government and the Indian government. So I, I would differentiate those two. Uh, China was always the golden goose, uh, and we know where that has gotten us. Should we be concentrating more time? Should we have been concentrating more time on India? Absolutely. Absolutely. There are so many avenues for Canada to work with India, um, and so that's why it's a little surprising that we haven't made more headway. Um, I'm thinking about a number of different examples. The agricultural industry is obviously one of them. The oil and gas offshore, oil and gas exploration in India is is kind of at a nascent stage, and it's the place where we have technologies. Um, telehealth, telemedicine is another example. 
there are a lot of avenues for this relationship to become forward, and I think it requires a will of government to be able to move this forward. Yeah, considering the population, I'm surprised that we are not paying more attention. Uh, the Prime Minister said, uh, uh, Indian Prime Minister Modi said, uh, India will do its best to uh, to help Canada out. How would you interpret that? I would interpret that to say um, that there are a lot of demands, I think, coming to India uh, from countries around the world. We know, for example, Brazil has approached India and, and Brazil has a large population for um, for their vaccine production capacity. Um, and so it, Canada is one country in a queue. And so that, mm. I think, is what um, uh, Prime Minister Modi is suggesting, is that there needs to be, or not there needs to be, but on their end there's going to be some prioritization that will need to happen in terms of its distribution. Of course, it's it's much more complicated than I think than I think, you know, all of it yeah. can, can garner in terms of supply chain. But that would kind of be what I would get from that those words particularly. This uh, this certainly now does give India a tremendous amount of leverage over Canada. Do you see that changing relations relationships in the future? In, in some ways, I think um, Canada has been slow to recognize the growth of India and its role in the world economy. Um, and so I think this is an expression of that. So, you know, um, Canada, Canada has always seen sort of India as, for a long time, since, since India's independence, kind of as a beneficiary to, to Canada's place in the world. And when the script flips, uh, it requires a lot of, you know, government focus and attention on what that means for Canada, and it hasn't really been apparent because the relationship hasn't, you know, been. De- de- we haven't been dependent on one another uh, to that extent. Now, all of a sudden, with these vaccines, we we kind of have um, we were bearing witness to India's sort of powerhouseness in the area of vaccines. Boy, it's amazing how a COVID nineteen pandemic can change things and who we have relationships with. Mm-hmm. Anita Singh with us, fellow at the Center for the Study of, Secur- Study of Security and Development, researching Canada-Indian relations uh, at Dalhousie University. Anita, Anita, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You as well. All right. Lots of chatter about variants and, and what they mean. There was uh, chatter about the AstraZeneca vaccine in Africa not using it because it wasn't effective against their variant. Um, I believe that has changed. Let's get the latest on all of this. Dr. Timothy Sly is with us, epidemiologist with Ryerson University and is here now. Timothy, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Oh, yes, uh, Scott. Thank you very much indeed. Ready to go. So uh, talk to us about uh, first AstraZeneca. There was some concern about it and the new vi- uh, variants. Uh, I've heard information in the last 24 hours that that's not the case. It, uh, the World Health Organization said that it, it it's, it's does well against the new vir- variants or as well as can be expected, I guess, and is good for those over uh, 65. Your thoughts on this vaccine, which is yet to be approved in Canada? Yeah, that story is still developing, Scott. That's the P1 uh, variant. That's the South African one. Uh, there was a quite a small study that showed that uh, the AstraZeneca, the AZ uh, vaccine, probably was reduced effectiveness. Uh, that's that's being looked at, and I think over the next couple of days we'll see some uh, uh, clarification, the verification one way or another with that one. Uh, we don't seem to see that uh, kind of alarm with the other variants, the uh, the 117, which is a, known as the UK one, or the uh, or the 1351, which has been called the uh, 
uh, sorry, the, the, P, the P1 is the Brazil one. The government numbers run the wrong way. It's the, the, the South, South African, <coughs> the one is the one that's doubtful with the, uh, the, 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 the vaccine. The Brazil and the UK one, Brazil one we don't know much about at the moment, but the UK one seems to be uh, responding well to the vaccines. In fact, the UK actually is 89, 90% of their virus isolates now are with the new variant in UK. And are is the UK being vaccinated with AstraZeneca or Pfizer? I'm not exactly sure on the proportion of vaccines. They've got a different, totally different mix to what we have because they're mm-hmm. producing some of their own. They're very linked to Europe, and there have been some restrictions there too with some of the European uh, ex, uh, vaccines been ex- exported now to a different country. Of course, it's not they're not part of the European right. Union. So I'm not quite sure exact proportion of what's going on in the UK with the vaccines. So how many vi- variants are there right now, Doctor? Well, this, remember, the viruses always, uh, always have uh, mutated. This one, we've been lulled into a sense of relaxation because this one hasn't, since from the beginning, uh, mutated anywhere near as fast as, say, a, a, an ordinary common or garden influenza virus, which sort of mutates while you look at it. It's constantly mutating. This has been quite slow, but once it's begun, we're beginning to see, for example, the one that we call the UK variant, the B117, that already has has changed as well several times. So there's a number of variants within variants, and we can expect this to happen. It's what viruses do, especially RNA viruses like this one. So how effective are these vaccines as they keep changing? I mean, obviously... Obviously, they have to be altered as time goes by. AstraZeneca has already said they're going to, I believe it was them that said that they're, they've got a, a different version coming out in the fall, uh, just as a flu shot would evolve. Would the same thing happen here? Scott, I think it's quite likely that we're in the future we're going to see one, maybe two boosters or something like that within the, within a year until it settles down. Remember, the mutations are going to occur more rapidly where the virus is replicating more rapidly. In other words, hot spots for spread is where we're going to see mutants appearing, just on a probability basis. That's why it appeared in Brazil. That's why it appeared in Britain at that time. In South Africa, these are hot spots for the spread. And it's amazing so far, we haven't seen the new variants appearing in the United States either. But give it a time, it'll, it probably has appeared. We haven't found them yet. Uh, obviously, the concern of the new variants was their ability to spread uh, more quickly uh, than the initial. Uh, is that the only concern at this point? You, you talked about the, uh, the uh, African variant uh, might be a little bit, uh, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but might be a little bit more concerning. Well, yeah, there's a, there's a, we, we don't know as much about the African one, certainly even less than the Brazil one, but let's, let's look at the UK one at the moment. That one, uh, initially, we were told, uh, wonderful work done by Imperial College in London, about it's about uh, 50% additional rate of spread, give or take, somewhere between 35 and 55% additional efficiency in spread. And that, actually, from a public health perspective, is far more alarming than increasing the lethality of it. Because this is a, an exponent, you know, you can always fool people by uh, by doubling, doubling, doubling that kind of uh, thing. Where minds not really fixed on it, and we can figure out. I just did some calculations. If you take a city about half the size, about half a million, uh, probably Hamilton size, roughly, if you have a uh, a mutation that causes a uh, an increase in the uh, fatality rate, 
then you're going to double the amount of deaths you'd get in a, in a month. So it may well be, uh, say, 220 deaths in a month. Uh, it may boost it up to about 360 deaths in a month. Uh, if you increase the rate of transmission by half as much again, in a month you could get four or five times the number of deaths simply because the number is building on itself at an enormous right. rate. So that is a big alarm. But in the last uh, week or so, we've also had some concern that the, from Britain as well, they're doing a lot of work on this, that the, it, this virus, uh, the, the mutation, might actually be slightly more lethal as well. Early days yet, but it looks like this one, the, the B117, uh, is transmitting more effectively and it might actually present a bit more of a, of a hazard to more serious uh, illness too. Uh, the faster we vaccinate, doctor, the faster that we get a handle on these new variants and they don't keep multiplying or, or oh, changing? Yeah. One way or another, the vaccines are going to be the way out of this, and really the only way out. You've you got to keep your fingers crossed on this. And uh, what we need to really do is to ramp up that vaccination. There's some, there's some a number of things on the horizon we can do while we're waiting because it's going to take a while to get it in there. For example, just, uh, just uh, back of an envelope stuff, Ontario's got, uh, what, 15 million people in it. We'd need to vaccinate uh, at least 10 million to achieve something like a, a herd immunity where the thing stops spreading. 10 million people at two doses each, that's 20 million doses. Uh, and that would mean, if we're aiming for, say, a 10-month period, say the end of November, something like that, we'd need to be vaccinating in Ontario, overall, the whole province, about 2 million doses uh, uh, a month. That's about mm. 68,000 doses a day. Wow. Now, that's a lot. Uh, although Mayor Tory was looking at plans for Toronto, just announced this morning, within an hour and a half ago, and uh, they're planning on their nine new centers here in Toronto to be able to vaccinate something more than 120 a day which is uh, pretty good going. So they might be able to do it. I don't know. But uh, there is hope on the horizon with all this. I mean, people are really hurting with this lockdown. But I think what we need to do is this. Bear in mind that we've got to make a decision based on the local situation. The whole province isn't under the same threat as downtown Peel and Toronto. So we make a decision based on the local positivity rate, you know, how many tests coming back positive. We also should make a, a, a firm commitment to at least doubling up the protection. You know, if we're going to ease the, ease the lockdown a bit here and there when, when time looks appropriate, we've got to double up on that protection, that distancing and masking. This is no time to fall around and, and play yeah. around with it. This thing is going to get out of control. In fact, I probably, I think we're going to see another wave coming probably the end of March, maybe uh, halfway through, up to halfway through April. It'll be a third wave. How big it is, I think, depends on these precautions I'm talking about now. So we're doubling the masking, uh, literally maybe doubling the masking, possibly that's one way out of it, but at least be sure you're getting at least one really good mask well-fitted. We've got to increase the testing, Scott. We've been deficient in testing since what july when we yeah. had rapid testing Let, let's yeah. stop there for a sec doctor and, and i, I want to poke you on that one a bit more um you know we've heard so much about testing 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 since the beginning of this then it was the testing wasn't here it wasn't approved then it came in and and apparently there's lots of tests around but now we're concerned of the accuracy of those tests so is it better and i guess this is the big debate uh do you test people with a uh, mass test people with something that perhaps 
perhaps isn't as accurate? Is that better than nothing at all? Or do you wait for something that's more accurate? What is your thought on that and, and you why know, we you, are where we are? You ask the right questions. You're hitting it right on the head here. The biggest reason for reluctance in using the testing, and I should say also that Canada sits at about number 35 at least in the world, in terms of tests per million population, we should be in the top 10. But uh, your question is this, uh, and it's the main reason that the government has given for not uh, launching into rapid tests. Rapid tests are, shall we say, around 90% effective in finding the positive if it's there, as opposed to the more expensive, longer uh, RNA test, which is about 99% roughly. If you give one of these cheap, fast tests, to the same person within about four or five days. You double up the test. It only costs about 3 to $5 each test. It's nothing. If you do that, your screening now is up equivalent to the RNA test. It's about 99%. You mm. double up two 90s, and you've got about a 99 in there. Why wouldn't we have done that on every interface position, right? Every taxi driver, every limousine driver, every, every manicure, pedicure, even mm-hmm. teachers, if you like. It doesn't matter. Anybody's got a public interface position. At least we'll know where the virus is. This isn't like the flu or anything else that you can look at. Uh, this, uh, at least half the people who have the virus don't show any signs or symptoms and might not even know they've got it. So how can you control a pathogen if we don't know that? Uh, why is it, because it seems that all the provinces are in the same predicament. Nobody is using the testing any more than the other, I don't believe. So why is, is it Health Canada? It, what is the reason why we don't take your approach to this test? This well, my approach has been uh, done yeah. in Britain. Uh, yes. They did the whole city of Southampton using the rapid test. Uh, so why has the Canadian months. government been hesitant then? Because I of don't the... know, Scott, but I do know that if you read the report from uh, the SARS-1, one of the biggest criticisms of that was that we were waiting back in 2003. Uh, you're probably too young to remember that. Uh, we were waiting. Thank you for the had... compliment, Doctor. I will take that. <laughs> They were waiting. The criticism was that people waited until they were 100% sure that the thing worked uh, absolutely perfectly before they brought it in. And in fact, if, if, if nothing is 100%. None of these vaccines are 100%. We know that. None of the testing procedures, the monitoring, the screening, none of it's 100 But the secret is to layer up these protections and screening mechanisms. If you layer them up, you begin to get a really good tight screening. So the, the sense here is that why wouldn't you use rapid tests, say two or three of these, in a period of a couple of weeks, uh, instead of one more expensive long-term RNA test? Uh, you're going to get the same result, and you could do this much more rapidly. Remember, remember when, when in the beginning the PM was saying, uh, uh, Canadians abroad, you've got to come back now. This is the time to come back to Canada. You yeah. remember this message was going out, mm-hmm. and the message was, don't stop at Loblaws, don't stop at your mother-in-law's house, just go straight home and stay there for two weeks. Okay, nobody mentioned about the poor taxi driver from the airport yeah. who was shuffling yeah. these families backwards and forwards uh, 20 or 30 a day. And then the taxi drivers began to die off, began to get ill and die off. Uh, people forget about the, the other humans involved in this, and we should have mm-hmm. been testing all the way from the beginning, no question. Uh, you've said those dreaded two words I've avoided saying, uh, and that's third wave. Uh, we're certainly hearing lots of people in your position, your peers, talk about this. How concerned are you about that third wave? And is well, it inevitable? 
I, I, th- I would suggest that it's, it's virtually inevitable. Britain has uh, went into its, its, uh, its, its quite a large spread of this new variant. And when the new variant takes over, it will take over with a vengeance. All the modeling shows that with a, an increase of, of, say, 50% increase in transmission, this thing will be out of control very, very quickly. Now, the only way to, to suppress that, remember, these two things on the horizon at the same time, the cavalry is arriving distantly with the vaccines, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and on the other direction, we've got the enemy arriving. That's the, the new variants. Now, whoever gets here first will, will, will predict our fate. So in the meanwhile, we can sort of protect ourselves by, by distancing and masking even better than we've done up till now. Keep your fi- fingers crossed for the vaccine, and let's keep our eye on these, uh, these variants, because they could well get out of control. I think it's quite likely we will see a surge. How big it is, I don't know. Remember, the second one was bigger than the first one, and that's pretty normal with a pandemic. It was with 1918. Whether the third one will be as big or bigger or smaller, I just don't know at the moment. So, Doctor, how do we prepare for that? You said double up on the protocol and such, but many are asking, should we be reopening if it's inevitable that we're going to get a third wave? Oh, yeah. I think we've got to make these tough decisions. We can't keep lockdown forever. We need to get people back uh, doing things. So this is why I think we need to make careful decisions, political people need to make decisions based on this best kind of evidence. In other words, not a blanket uh, approach. It's got to be looked at what's locally going on. Uh, Increasing, increasing by at least a factor of two, the protections that that we put around ourselves. We've got to enforce quarantine in a really big way. And in the beginning, we weren't really enforcing it. We were were saying, would you mind awfully if we asked you to stay home for two weeks? You know, it's being a little tighter now, but we've got to lock down on that. The countries are doing it well. Have, have enforced quarantine with severe fines if you break it. Uh, everywhere from uh, Australia to uh, Taiwan and Singapore, very, you've got to be enforced. Travel has got to be enforced as well because oh, at the moment, this is like another epidemic within a pandemic. There's variants coming in. It's still early days yet. The United States has got uh, California and Florida uh, fair amounts of this moving around. Other states, only handfuls of these new variants. We're in that handful stage as well, but let's try and keep it like that. Almost all these new variants can be traced back to recent arrivals. So we're we're able to control that to some degree. And I think we're probably doing a fairly good job with that. But again, testing before you arrive in the country and testing once you've arrived and twice too, not once. If you test once when people arrive, they could have been infected in the airport lining up or on the plane. Testing when you arrive won't show it. It's got to be tested four or five days later. A second test, that's what you need. Uh, no one's got a crystal ball here, doctor, no. but where do you see us at the end of March when all of the vaccines or a, a large portion of vaccine will arrive? We're talking of millions of doses then, uh, four million, I think six million in total uh, by the end of March. That would be, I guess, three, three million doses. Uh, where do you see us by the end of March in the spring when all when the doses do start to pick up? Look, look at your numbers, Scott. Three million doses. Just in Ontario, we need 20 million doses. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that's just in one province. And, uh, and, and things are always going to be more delayed. Than I think in the long run, 
in the long run, this will this will work out. Canada has bought a hell of a lot more vaccine than it can actually use once it arrives. But it's a case of when it arrives and will it will it be in time to stop a a third surge? Let's keep fingers crossed. And everybody has a good responsibility here to to knuckle down and try and prevent the spread. That way, we might be able to open up a few businesses a little down the road in the in the hot spots, but even right now in the in the in the lesser affected areas. But we've got to get people back. They're really hurting badly. But the mean, but in the meantime, we don't want to increase the, the temptation for a, a, a third wave that could even be worse than the second one. Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist with Ryerson University, talking about that third wave and variants and such. And of course, the protocol, masking, social distancing, washing of the hands, uh, still uh, the most effective way to keep this under control. Uh, Tim, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. And you, Scott. Take care. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Here's today's daily commentary. Here is some great Canadian news that has nothing to do with the vaccine or global pandemic. We'll remind you of days gone by. Put a smile on your face, especially if you are a Tragically Hip fan. Tragically hip guitarist Rob Baker has announced while digitizing the band's catalog that there is certainly enough material for a new album, although would not set a timeline for any new release. The band went silent after the death of lead singer Gord Downey, leaving fans wondering if they would ever hear from the band again. Baker said there were always a few tracks from every album that don't make the final cut for various reasons and plenty to work with, not to mention live tracks. He is also working on an autobiography of hip stories as well as with other musicians and recording his own material. We all remember the great tragedy of losing this iconic Canadian band and how their story touched our hearts. Baker and his bandmates are further proof. Life goes on and we celebrate. Something to keep in mind these days. So crank it up. I'm Scott Thompson. All right, let's bring in Michael Tobe, Troy Media Syndicated columnist, contributor to the Washington Times. As always, I've got tons of stuff to talk to this guy about, uh, this side of the border and the other. Michael, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, Scott. Thank you. Let's start up here. Uh, article in the Toronto Star today talking about a timeline, and Justin Trudeau is on his way to uh, announcing an election in the spring. Do you think that once all of this max vaccination that he has promised is coming in in March, that, uh, boom, we'll be off to uh, an election? I don't know. I mean, obviously that has been speculated for a bit, but I think some of it may have actually been withdrawn when, I don't know if you've covered on your show or not, uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole recently said that if a vote does come down to actually defeat the government, that the Conservatives would not be the ones doing it. And basically, mm. if they decide to prop up or stand alongside the Liberal government, even if it's just for a vote or two, that will delay things quite considerably. I'm not suggesting, obviously, because it is a minority government, and historically, minority governments only run an average of, give or take, 16 to 18 months here or there. It will fall at some point, and it will be brought down at some point. You know, there's no way that Justin Trudeau can hang on to a minority government for a full four-year term or beyond. One of the longest minority governments in history, and it's just simply because I actually served in it, was my old friend and boss Stephen Harper's minority government, which lasted close to two and a half years, which was kind of extraordinary in itself. 
But do I think that the, the, the rollout of the vaccines are going to do it? No, especially with all the screw-ups, hiccups, mistakes, and problems and issues that this prime minister has had with messaging, with dealing directly with Pfizer and Moderna to ensure that we actually get <clears throat> excuse me, the vaccines that we ordered and should receive. Uh, some of the mishaps that have happened now, as you know, the, you know, the discussion of AstraZeneca, where the prime minister said that, oh, yeah, of course, you know, roughly about 20 million doses of AstraZeneca would be coming by the end of June, forcing the federal government to come out pretty quickly within a couple hours and state that wasn't the case at all. And again, because we're so far behind on Pfizer and Moderna, Pfizer's order was, Pfizer's order was roughly about half, to, you know, in January. And it still hasn't caught up to this point, excuse me. And Moderna is obviously, you know, we've lost about a quarter of that order. Although things will obviously be sorted out and things will hopefully eventually get back to some sense of normalcy when it comes to at least the vaccination distribution, there has been such a mess here that it would open up so many doors and so many opportunities, not just for the conservative opposition, but all opposition parties to attack them. I don't think it's going to happen as early as the spring, but certainly later this year, that is possible. So once max vaccination arrives, whether it's in the spring or in the fall, as the prime minister has has promised several times, we'll all be vaccinated by the fall, uh, that this will all start in mass at the end of March. If, if that happens, true to form, um, will is that enough for Canadians to forget where we are now, January, February, March? Well, it better not be. We have fallen to 46 overall on the actual list in terms of countries and their distribution levels. In other words, how many daily vaccines we're giving out. We are way behind countries that are either quite poor or are below the poverty line in certain ways. And there's no reason that countries like El Salvador should be ahead of us person for person when it comes to vaccine distribution. It's not a slight against El Salvador or some of the third world countries that are ahead of us. But based on the fact that Canada is a big enough country, yes, it's a middle power, but certainly we have an established system where we should be able to, through the federal government distributing it, giving it to the provinces so they can hand them out, we should be much, much higher than that. And when you see reports such as, well, the New York Times is certainly one report that has shown us dropping like a stone, hitting from the 15th to, as I said, about 46th in the world. There are two other polls which show roughly about the same thing. And you also have you know, publications like The Economist stating that at the present rate of vaccine distribution, uh, Canada will not be fully vaccinated or at least get the vaccinations to people who want to take those doses by mid-2022. And that has not changed since they made that report. When you put all those things together, you know, I don't see how it's all going to magically you know, come up and be tied up together with a nice little neat bow at the end of March when we are so far behind now. And even if it is, hypothetically, you know, what would you expect the prime minister to do? To come out and say, see, see, it all worked out. The problem was that that gap period that happened in January and is happening right now in February will unfortunately mean that more people will get sick and more lives will potentially be lost. And there's no other way around that. And it's very easy for opposition parties to use that against the federal government. You can only point fingers so directly, I agree with you, but you can circle around that issue so easily if you're a party from the right, like the Tories are, or parties from the left, like the Green and the Greens and the NDP are, 
and it would be an easy strategy to use, among other things you can actually work on. So, no, I don't think that if everything comes together at the end of March, that suddenly the Liberal political party machine is going to suddenly say, well, we're in a perfect position now. Let's just pull the levers and call the election. Because you have to look at how the beginning of this year has gone and the problems that we've had with vaccine distribution. So if nothing else, I think that has stopped or halted some of the plans that they may have had for 2021. So why are we not commenting more? You know, you know obviously, uh, the prime minister was asked at his news conference yesterday if he had talked to the Indian prime minister. He didn't answer that. And then a couple hours later, yeah. there's a tweet coming up from the Indian prime minister saying, I just got a call from the Canadian prime minister. Yeah. Uh, and they are producing their own, even though they have gone the generic drug route, which obviously doesn't impress big pharma. But no. why are why are there not more comments on production facilities um you know i mean other than the CanSino, which of course china pulled the rug on and the novavax which was just announced when uh all of this came to be about oxford uh and the astrazeneca vaccine and such um are we doing anything to try to improve our relationship with big pharma which is why they are clearly not pushing us to the front of the line well, look, I mean, I, I am, just quickly, I'm glad you brought up India as well. I was going to try to move it into this conversation somehow. I've got to say to you, I'm 50. I'm not that old, but I've been doing politics and writing and communications and all that for more than half my life. I have never in, in all this time seen a prime minister in this country refuse to, rec- refuse to state the details of a discussion he had with another world leader from another democracy like mm. India. You know, Narendra Modi, who is, as you may know, and perhaps you discussed in your show, has said that he would actually help Canada out in terms of vaccinations and vaccine distribution if obviously we can get AstraZeneca cleared and passed by Health Canada soon. You know, that's one of the most important points. And if the procurement minister, Anita Anand, is obviously able to, you know, make some sort of deal or association with India, India has actually done, you know, rather well as of late in terms of their distribution, and they are ranked much higher than we are, it's astonishing that Trudeau will not reveal the details of it. Only one can assume because he's so embarrassed by what he probably discussed with Mr. Modi, but I'm only speculating. Um, But in terms of other things, you know, there's just been a whole mess. I think we can sort of tidy it up, you know, instead of going in circles when it comes to vaccines in general. You know, Canada has purchased 398 million vaccines or vaccine doses from different companies around the world, including Pfizer and Moderna. But more than 70% of those vaccines that we've committed to purchasing and have purchased are from companies that we have not approved as of yet. Yeah. And, you know, we don't have to go into the whole rigmarole with uh, Greg Fergus, the liberal backbencher, who came out and basically said way off of government message, something to the effect of, and I'm just paraphrasing that, well, we're going to have to rely on other drug companies like AstraZeneca to sort of get us through. I mean, in theory, that's probably not wrong, but that is exactly what the liberal spin doctors did not want coming out at this stage. This government has just handled things very, very poorly. And it amuses me when liberal talking heads and liberal MPs who are either in this government or in the backbenches with this government, either someone other, either cabinet ministers or backbenchers, it amuses me when they come out and still, much like their prime minister did, as you may remember a few weeks ago, start pointing fingers at the provincial government as holding things up. 
Yeah. And yes, there are certainly issues that are happening with the provincial governments. Rapid testing has certainly become one little matter, and a CBC investigation seems to prove that as well. But that aside, the, distribu- the purchase and distribution of the drugs starts in Ottawa. It's a federal initiative. Nobody else is involved in that part of it. So much so that we haven't even yet seen any of the contracts signed by this federal government with Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Johnson & Johnson, and all the others. And while you know usually, what? as people have said to me, you don't reveal contracts like that, and that's true, I agree, I think in this case, if you want to be open and transparent about things, especially with all the delays that are affecting the health and safety of Canadians, you would want those things out there to at least show that there's some semblance of an agreement there and not some sort of a gentleman's handshake where the terms and conditions are all over the map or may not even exist in the first place. So from pillar to post, the Liberals have just handled this very, very poorly. They know it. They don't want to talk about it publicly. They try to spin it away, which, again, is part of politics, but it's not working. And now when you have things like, even as I just mentioned, the conversation with another world leader who has agreed in principle to help out Canada if there are still problems, and you even combine that with the fact that we're dipping into, you know, Codex, which is the the fund that was created for, you know, for Arabic and third world countries, poor countries to get the vaccine doses. We are the only G7 country still to this day who has dipped into it. All of this is just a complete mess. And I can see the, I can see, you know, I mean, the provinces have, have set up distribution systems assuming we would get a consistent supply of vaccine. Yeah. And, of course, now all of a sudden we're finding out, you know, even with that little promo pack that we got before Christmas, I mean, hmm. you know, it caught the provinces off guard because they weren't supposed to start till January 1 on all of this. So hmm. then it made, look, we're all, look what we're doing, and you guys can't get caught up. I'm assuming that this yeah. is all going to come in in one mad shipment, and then they're going to point to the provinces and say, why can't you administer six million doses in one day? When we all know these systems are set up to have constant supply, and, you know, that's why they're sitting empty now. So then, you know, they're going to come in with this mass vaccination, and every province is going to get caught with its pants down because no one can, you know, vaccinate that many people in such a short period of time. I want to ask you one more thing on the Indian issue. Um, uh, The Indian Prime Minister said we will do our best. How do we translate that? in order to, we will do our best to get Canada vaccines. And I think this is June. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you. Look, I mean, I I can't speak for Mr. Modi and his government, but I presume what is happening is, you know, India obviously needs an enormous amount of vaccine doses from many different companies because it's one of the world's biggest countries in terms of overall population. My guess is that the Indian government has probably purchased an enormous supply, billions of doses, so that they can obviously vaccinate their entire population or, or close to it. Because obviously, much like Canada, there'll be some people in India who will not want to take it, and that is what it is. Um, but I would, if that's the case, I would imagine that Modi could probably help out Canada and maybe other countries as well in terms of providing some of their additional or extra doses that would just go bad in the end if they cover the numbers that they wish to get. In other words, whatever they're assuming they can do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, if they have an oversupply, he may be able, that being Mr. Modi, may be able to help Canada in some fashion with a few hundred thousand, few million extra doses if we really need it. So that's how I interpret it. 
But again, we'll see what happens. But if Canada has to rely on India to do it, a thanks to you know we should thank the Indian India's government and Mr. Modi as much as we possibly can. And I don't care whether some of your listeners don't agree with him ideologically. I do, but that's not the point. I think any helping hand should be always welcomed. But B, if we do actually come to that stage, I think it's terrible because Canada should be able to do this on its own, should have been able to do it on its own, and there's only one place to blame. You can blame the drug companies to some degree. That's acceptable. But the real blame, it's sitting in Ottawa right now in terms of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and that Liberal government. All right, let's. Uh, I can't let you go without asking what's going on uh, south of the border. Obviously, the impeachment trial continuing. The Democrats showing uh, an incredible presentation yesterday, unseen footage, security camera mm-hmm. stuff, what have you. It still looks like this is obviously going to, uh, the, the, the Republicans are going to vote uh, not to impeach Trump. Uh, that being said, this is on record now, which I guess was the, was, was the objective here. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, how does the U.S. move forward from this now that this has all been documented and we've seen what we've seen. We're assuming he's not going to get impeached. How does the Republican Party move forward on this? No, he won't get impeached. It's, it's actually it's next to nil. It is impossible. You would need 17 Republicans to go with to move with all 50 Democrats to ensure that two thirds of the Senate votes to confirm the impeachment from the House of Representatives. That's the only way you can actually... Is this harming the Republican Party by not putting an end to this now? Uh, Is this going to bite the Republican Party in the future? Well, I don't think so, necessarily. I think a lot of Republicans, quite frankly, are just tired of this. They see this as a second show trial. It doesn't mean that they necessarily love Donald Trump or that they want him to run again in 2024. They just want to move on. And quite frankly... I would be very stunned if President Joe Biden and his advisors in the White House, by and large, didn't want the same thing. Not because they like Donald Trump, far from it. I think they just want to go on with their own agenda and start moving forward in a positive direction. So my question is to you, Michael, does the Republican Party, I think everybody wants to move on, does the Republican Party move on with Donald Trump or do they uh, move on as a new party, a different party? No, they're not going to be a different party, but, I'll, but I, here's what I think they will do. We, the Republican Party still believes in the basic adherences of small-c conservatism, which is obviously small government, low taxes, um, you know, more individual rights and freedom, a more firm and, and bold foreign policy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you know, I've talked about it with you, I've talked about with others. That's what the Republican Party has stood for for decades, for generations. However... What they can do is they can incorporate elements of Donald Trump's ideology or Trumpism in place that were positive, not negative. And there was plenty of negative, but a number of things he did that were not actually bad, when you think about them, was rebuilding the Republican Party's ties with the working class, which had been broken very badly the last few decades and used to be a very strong component of that party. But I'm not talking about this. I'm not talking about being a leader of the Republican Party and conservative politics here. And, and I've, I had this question yesterday with other uh, pundits and said, you know, is Donald Trump the best person to sell the message moving forward? We all know that there's elements uh, that what he did in his policy that were beneficial as far as conservatives and Republicans feel. That's not the question, because any Republican that comes forward is going to sell those exact same ideas. The point that I'm making is 
do they want the Donald Trump brand associated with the Republican Party? You can take what the, you know, you can cherry pick the good parts of his policy and easily in, in, encompass them in any other uh, Republican candidate. My question is, do they want to be associated with that brand? Is well, that positive say, or negative? Well, as I tried to say a couple of times, the answer is they are going to take elements of the ideas that he had in the White House. I don't think they're necessarily going to walk alongside him, which I've not been allowed to finish. That's the big issue right there. Donald Trump may turn out to be a candidate if he's, for example, if he's acquitted in the Senate, which I believe he will, and he wants to run again, he is still very popular in that party. He will be a very, aside from what some people like Lisa Murkowski, a senator from Alaska, is a Republican, is saying, he will be a very strong force in the Republican Party if the Republican Party wants him to be a strong force. And that is something that won't be decided in days, weeks, and months, Scott. Not at all. And everyone keeps saying, when, when, when. This is unfortunately a multi-year process. You have to basically decide what makes sense, which way do we want to go, what is best for the public, and what policies make the most sense going forward. And that doesn't mean that Donald Trump is going to be the de facto leader of not only the Republican Party, but the U.S. conservative movement. Trump isn't, as I've said a million times, isn't what you would call a modern or traditional No, not at all, which is why I can't understand why they're hanging their hat on him. Because, and you're, you're right, in theory, and believe me, I've been thinking this as well, along with a lot of others, we know that, and we understand that. The reason that a lot of Republicans still sort of support him is they like the fact that they like their leaders to be challenging, to push back, you know, to sort of beat their chest and, and demand certain issues, to oppose political correctness, to oppose the media, to demand changes to, say, you know, to Europe, the G7, you know, relations with Canada. They like that sort of fierceness in the leader. The problem is they're looking at the wrong person to do yeah. it. Yeah. And I think that's the real issue there. So to tidy it up, is Donald Trump going to be a player in Republican Party circles? Without a doubt, yes. Does that mean that he will be the standard bearer in 2024? Absolutely not. Right now, it would be hard to beat him. But as time goes along, he'll be four years older. More people will come up. Hopefully they will be different than Donald Trump in certain ways. They can, again, they can cherry-pick certain good points, which I think are good, and you can use them. But I think that they will probably the party will move back to a mold that was it was before, a small-C conservative party that champions ideas and principles that, yes, appeal to people like me, but also appeal to a large swath of people. I just don't think that Donald Trump is necessarily going to be that person. But will he be a player in the game? For years. Absolutely. Michael Tobe has been with us, Troy Media syndicated columnist, contributor to The Washington Times, former speechwriter for Stephen Harper. Uh, Michael, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. My pleasure. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.